I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Psalm 77. We're teaching a series that we've entitled God and Miracles. We, um, we started this series a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, and I was, uh, it was something that the Lord really put on my heart. I've been kind of working up to it and, and uh, um, didn't really know exactly where I'm going to go. Still don't. Um, but I, I know less now than I did before. I, uh, I got a hold of some real good books. I mean some thick books, reference research material. I read the summaries on these books. They were all about miracles and stuff like that and, and uh, things that had been researched and different points of view of looking at things. And I, I just, I bought a bunch of books. And uh, it's frustrating for me because when you read a book, the summary, and you, you get excited about it and the title sounds great. Some people just have gifts for titles, I think. I'm not one of those, by the way. Um, but then I got into some of the books, and, and every one that I got, I got into it, and I realized these people don't know any more about it than I do. That's so frustrating for me. I don't understand why people that aren't smarter than me write books. Because <laughs> I would never consider writing a book on a subject I didn't know any more about than what they wrote. So, woe is us. We're left with the Bible, (laughs) which is the best book of miracles there is. Amen. Psalm 77, verse 14. Thou art the God that doeth wonders. This word wonders is the word miracles. Thou art the God that doeth wonders. Thou hast declared thy strength among the people. Um, You know, in in church history and throughout the modern day history, certainly, Everybody always wants to complain and complain about the same thing. Where is the God that doeth miracles? If God is a miracle working God, if God's a healing God, then why doesn't he do it the way that he used to or that Jesus did or blah, 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 blah. Well, that's nothing new. You need to realize if you read the context of this psalm, this verse 14 in Psalm 77, you'd realize that's what this guy's doing. He's lamenting. Let me, let me back up a little bit. Um... I don't want to read the whole thing. Well, let's start in verse 1. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, even unto God with my voice, and he gave ear unto me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord, and my sore ran in the night and ceased not. My soul refused to be comforted. I don't know about you, but that sounds like me sometimes. He goes on and says, verse 6, I called to remembrance my song in the night. I communed with mine own heart, and my spirit made diligent search. Will the Lord cast off forever? This is a place we need to tear up. Will the Lord cast off forever? And will he be favorable no more? Is his mercy clean gone forever? Does his promise fail forevermore? If we could go on with this, folks, this would be a series that a lot of people would really enjoy. (laughs) Let's all cry together about our problems. Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in anger shut up his tender mercies? One translation says this way. Well, it's really not a translation. It's a paraphrase. One translation, or the paraphrase says it this way. It says, just my luck. Just when I need help, God's run out of power. Now the guy starts encouraging himself. He said, verse 10, and I said, this is my infirmity, but... 
I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. I will meditate also of all thy work and talk of thy doings. Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? You are the God that doeth miracles. Do you want to know how to get out of your, out of your, your depression days and out of the doldrums or whatever term we want to put on it? That's how to do it. You start talking about who God is and start meditating on what he did before. Now, folks, that's, what, that's one of the reasons, the, the main reason that we started this series as we did, is I just want to talk about the miracles of God. One of the things that uh, we've spent the last couple of weeks talking about the miracle of creation, if you, if you do an Internet search or, or any kind of research to find out how many miracles are in the Bible, you'll come up with every number you can think of. I've seen numbers as high as 333 miracles in the Bible. Most of the numbers are, are somewhere in the neighborhood of 110 to 120 to 130, somewhere like that. But the fact is, it's impossible to count. For example, creation. Do we count that as one miracle or a million? How do you figure that out? Other people try to categorize them. I know that uh, some of the categories are miracles uh, regarding the human body, miracles regarding nature, miracles regarding food, miracles regarding military intervention, miracles regarding animals, miracles regarding finances. But you can't even do that. The catch of fish, was it a food miracle, was it an animal miracle, or was it a financial miracle? Yes. How do you figure these things out? There's no way to categorize them. And, folks, I think that's part of the point. You can't put God in a box. You can't put the creator of the universe in the box. One of the things that's, uh, uh, for the last two weeks, we've been talking about some of the scientific aspects and, and uh, the things regarding uh, science and physics and, and so forth concerning creation. One of the things that just keeps jumping out at me is, and I think I mentioned this last week, is the molecular weights. If gravity was stronger than ammonia vapor, which has a molecular weight of 17 would stay here on the earth and we wouldn't be able to breathe. Now, breathing is the thing we probably take more for granted than anything else. I mean, nobody thinks inhale, exhale, right? It's just an involuntary thing that our body does. It's just the way that it works. Well, if the molecular, vapor, the molecular weight of water vapor is 18. Now, think about that. The difference between 17 and 18, molecular weight. Do you know what molecular weight means? Molecular weight really is a mass term. It's a term regarding mass the mass of an object, not really weight, but it amounts to this. If gravity was um, not so precise, or let me say it this way. If gravity held on to ammonia vapor in the amount of one electron more, it's the difference in one electron. How heavy is an electron? We don't have stuff that can measure how light electrons are. But if gravity was one electron different, then instead of being able to have water vapor and air and, and so forth here at the surface of the earth, we'd have ammonia vapor which would, or ammonia gas, which would kill every, everything that, uh, that depends on oxygen. That's how precise the earth is. That's how precise creation is. There are a number of scientists that the more we discover, the more they discover about how the, the, uh, the earth operates and the laws of physics and so forth. There are a number of, of uh, well-known, famous atheists that have denied their atheism just by virtue of the scientific discoveries. 
There's one guy by the name of Anthony Flew. He's, uh, he's been dead for a few years. In, uh, in 2000 and... Uh, uh, let me see if I can get these numbers right. In 2006, he was the, the foremost. He's a philosopher and a scientist from England. He was one of the foremost atheists in his country. And in the scientific field, he, he uh, uh, published all kinds of stuff and, and things like that. And, and he was just sure, just absolutely certain that there was no God. And he promoted it very widely. Well, the scientists that don't believe in God, he was their hero. But in 2004, I believe it was, 2004, he came to the realization that the, that the, the universe is too precise for there not to be some universal spirit. Now, he never came out and called him God and never talked about Jesus, but he identified a universal spirit. He died in 2010, and he spent the last six years of his life trying to convince his former associate, atheist associates, that he hadn't gotten dementia or some kind of mental deficiency that caused him to recant on his claim that there was no God or universal spirit. That's happened over and over and over again, folks. You can't look at the world. The Bible says itself. You can see the creator in the creation. If you're willing to see it. Now that's the point. And here's the, the, the real question. Here's the real issue about miracles. Why? We can marvel about miracles. And we can talk about the, the, the physical side of things. And, and I, I love that stuff. I mean I wish I had more information about that things than, those things than I, than I have. But we can marvel about the, the physical side. And the scientific side of things all we want to. But the real question is why? What are miracles for? Turn back with me to the book of uh, Exodus. I want to talk to you about and uh, spend a little bit of time this morning talking about some of the miracles, the plagues of Egypt and the, the parting of the Red Sea, if we, get to, if we get to it, if we have time for it. But I want to read some of these things to you and identify what the Bible says about why for miracles. Let me uh, get a, a little bit ahead of myself by saying miracles, just like everything else God does, are intended to communicate. If you think about it, everything there, there is about God, every bit of knowledge that we have about God, everything that God does, every action that he takes, is intended to communicate with man. It's not required. God would not have to, first of all, he would not have to create the universe. He would not have to make man. And then once he made man, if he didn't like what he wound up with because of man's sin, rebellion, and so forth, he didn't have to communicate with us at all. Didn't then, doesn't now. So why in the world would God operate in a miraculous way? And let's define our terms again. Miracle is most often defined as divine intervention into the ordinary course of nature. Nature has an ordinary course. But there is divine intervention that can take place at God's choosing, at God's will. Not, certainly not at ours. I don't know of anybody on the earth that has miracle power in and of themselves. I know people that are conduits. Every Christian should be a conduit of miracle power, but we don't initiate it. We're just the channel by which, or intended to be the channel, by which miracles operate. Another definition that uh, a physicist came up with is, uh, for miracle is something outside of time and space injecting into time and space. I like that because everything about the universe is time and space. That's what defines the universe, time and space. Well, God's outside the universe. And so whatever miracle adjusts or changes or alters the ordinary course of nature, the laws, the precise laws of physics whereby time and space operate is coming from outside the system. 
And that has to be God. And certainly not everybody will agree that it's God, but it's hard to deny that it's not something. So what are miracles for? Why in the world does God do miracles? He does miracles to communicate. He does miracles to communicate, but that's not the only way you can communicate. So why in the world does he choose that manner or that method to communicate when he could just talk to us? That's what I want you to think about. He wouldn't have to, but he does. In Exodus chapter 1, we're, we're going to kind of skim through this. I don't want to read a lot, of, uh, uh, a lot of scripture on this. God starts talking to Moses in the burning bush. It gives us a little background in chapter 1 about uh, Moses and his time in Egypt and how he flees from Egypt because he kills the, the Egyptian and it's found out. And so he takes off and after 40 years he sees the burning bush. And God begins to speak to him in the burning bush and tells him about delivering Israel. He tells him about delivering Israel. He tells him that he's going to deliver his people. He tells him that he's going to take them to the promised land, the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and whatever other ites are there in the, in the promised land. And he, he speaks specifically about some things that he's going to do relative to the deliverance of his people. Now, let me back up a little bit and give you some history without going through and reading a lot of scripture. Let me tell you, uh, remind you of why Israel is in Egypt. Why the Israelites are in Egypt. You remember there was a famine. You remember that uh, the, uh, Jacob, who was later named Israel, his name was changed to Israel, had 12 sons. One of those sons was Joseph. Well, you remember Joseph had dreams and he told his brothers about the dreams. Probably not the best movie made. Because his brothers got tired of hearing his dreams that always ended up in him being exalted over them. And so they sold him into slavery. Well, the slavery that he was sold into wound up being in Egypt. He wound up being uh, a chief or head of uh, manager of Potiphar's house. And then his uh, Potiphar's wife um, told a lie about him making advances upon her. And so Potiphar threw, her, threw him in jail. Should have thrown her in jail. But nevertheless, threw him in prison. And he spent a number of years in prison. We don't know exactly how many. Probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 years, 10 or 12 years in prison. And then he comes out of prison because God gives him the interpretation to Pharaoh's dream. He comes out of prison and he's the prime minister of Egypt and now he's second in command in the nation under which he was once held prisoner. During the famine, when the, this famine occurs uh, after, uh, uh, well, probably the latter part of when Joseph is in prison and then becomes prime minister of, uh, of Egypt, the famine takes place and uh, Israel, through a series of circumstances, Jacob and, and his brothers wind up being um, residents of Egypt. They go down finally make peace again i'm skipping a lot of the story but make peace with joseph joseph makes a place for him there in egypt and they stay there for a long long time now um when they're in egypt they didn't start off in egypt as slaves they start off as guests but the bible says that one pharaoh died and another pharaoh came along that didn't know joseph joseph had already died and gone off the scene and so the new pharaoh doesn't know joseph and doesn't care why the people are there. He just recognizes that they are multiplying at such a rate that they become a threat if they become their enemies, become the enemies of Egypt, they could take over the country. So they enslave them. And they do a lot of things to try to kill the firstborn. Some of it works, some of it doesn't. And uh, that's the story of how Moses is found by Pharaoh's daughter and, and so forth. Well, it's the only time that we have record of in Jewish history where, Jew, where Israel became, the nation of Israel became slaves to another land that wasn't their fault. 
Every other time that, that uh, Israel has ever become slave or taken captive by another country is a result of their disobedience to God. This one was not. This one was just simply a matter of the fact that, um, uh, th- that Egypt felt threatened by them because exactly what God said would happen when he talked to Abraham, he said, your seed shall multiply as the stars of the sky and the, sea- the sand on the seashore. As they begin to multiply exponentially, Egypt feels threatened, so they enslave them. So what does God do? God sets out to deliver them. And so he puts Moses in position to do this. Now, when he's talking to Moses on the burning bush, one of the reasons that I'm setting this up in the way that I am is because you can't talk about the ten plagues of Egypt. You can't talk about the miracles that God did in uh, showing his wonders to Egypt without somebody coming up and saying, yeah, but God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And the only reason these things happen is because God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Like God needed to make somebody stand against him so he could show a miracle. That's like Jesus in John chapter 9 where people come up and say, Well, Jesus healed the blind man that was born blind. The reason he was born blind is so Jesus would have somebody to heal when he came by that day. But folks, I got to tell you, I don't want to serve a God like that. If that's the way God is, then he's not who he says he is in the word. It's just ridiculous. So here, I want to show you some scriptures, pick out some scriptures, and, and hopefully change your thinking about uh, God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Notice in chapter 3, Exodus chapter 3, God's talking to Moses in the burning bush or through the burning bush. Verse 17 is what I referred to. I've said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, or Hivites, and Jebusites unto a land flowing with milk and honey, and they shall hearken unto thy voice. And thou shalt come, thou and the elders of Israel, unto the king of Egypt, and you shall say unto him. Here's what, here's what God's telling Moses. I want you to say to Pharaoh. Say unto Pharaoh, the Lord, the God of Hebrews, has met with us, and now let us go. We beseech thee three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Now, I want you to notice something, folks. God's first plan was to tell Moses to tell Pharaoh, we want to go three days journey and sacrifice and worship God. Not that we want to be free forever. Not that we want to destroy your nation. Not that God's planning to, to, to wipe you out so that we can be free and never be under your bondage ever again. They're just simply saying we want to go for three days journey and worship our God. That's where it started. The reason that it escalated is because of what God foreknew. It's not that this is what God ordained. It's not this is what God planned out. It's what God saw from heaven, from outside of time and space. Here's what's going to happen in the realm of time and space. Verse 19. God said to Moses, and I am sure, the word sure means to know. So it can be translated, and I know, or I am sure, that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not by a mighty hand. In other words, not unless I show a mighty hand. Now, how did God harden his heart? God is simply saying, I know that this is a position Pharaoh is going to take. Now, you've got to remember the culture of the day. Pharaoh considered himself to be a god. So somebody, Moses or anybody else, come in and saying, God told me. He's, Pharaoh's first response is going to be, what do you mean, God? I'm God. What God are you talking about that's supposed to be bigger than me? I'm the king of the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. I'm God. 
So that's the way he's going to hear anything that Moses or anybody else would say about God. His question is, who is this God? I don't know him. Why? Because I'm too busy being God. Whatever I say goes. This is what the Pharaohs taught the people. And if you go back and you look at some of the Egyptian history and culture and, and uh, so forth about how some of the people that were Pharaohs became Pharaohs and the stories surrounding them, I mean, it's just nuts. I mean, they tell these stories how that the sun god deposited the baby at the steps of the, of the Sphinx or some goofy thing like that. That's one reason that Pharaoh's daughter was willing to take Moses out of the Nile River because the god of the Nile was big in their culture. So they, they thought, well, maybe this is somebody worthwhile. Then she looked in the basket and said, oh, this is a Hebrew child. But she hit him anyway. So God simply says, I know that Pharaoh will not let you go unless he sees signs and wonders. Verse 20, and I'll stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in the midst thereof. And after that, he'll let you go. And I'll give you this, pe- I'll give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall come to pass that when you go, you shall not go empty. But every woman shall borrow of her neighbor and of all and of her that sojourneth in her house jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment and you shall put them upon your sons and upon your daughters and you shall spoil the Egyptians please notice that God from outside of space and time says this is how it's going to go now is God making it happen not yet God's just simply saying this is what Pharaoh is going to do when you go tell him what I tell you to say everything that happens after that when God starts injecting into time and space from outside of time and space to do the plagues and the miracles and so forth. Now that's God taking action. Pharaoh's response is not God's work. God's just simply saying, I know this is how it's going to work. That's like you having seen a ball game. Somebody, maybe a friend of yours has recorded a ball game that you've already seen. You know what's going to come out. It doesn't matter how tight or tense or, or anxious your friend gets about the outcome, you know what the outcome is. You can sit there just as cool as a cucumber when it looks like the other team's going to win, maybe even to the last second, because you know the score. You've seen it. You've been there. God from outside of time and space sees what happens here on the earth, not because he causes it, not because he's in the heaven playing chess with man as the pawn, but because he sees, here's how it's going to go. Man has a free will. God just sees what that free will will do. Why? Because he's not limited by time or space. I wish people could get that. I wish people could understand that. Because, see, that explains both the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. God is sovereign. God sovereignly is going to perform these miracles and wonders and plagues upon Egypt. But the free will of Pharaoh is still in play. Pharaoh doesn't have to respond the way that God would prefer or maybe even the way that would be best for him and his people. Are you with me? All right. So Moses starts, uh, starts talking to God and starts making excuses about how can I go? I can't talk and yada, yada, yada. Um, skip with me over to chapter 4. In ver- start in verse 19. The Lord said unto Moses... In Midian, go return into Egypt for all the men that are, are dead which sought for thy life. Remember, the burning bush is not in Egypt. It's out in the backside of the desert where Moses has fled to. And Moses took his wife and his sons and set them upon an ass. And he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand. That's the one that God told him to throw down. And it became a 
snake, and then he took it back up in his hand, and it became a stick again. And the Lord said unto Moses, verse 21, When thou goest to return to Egypt, see that thou do all these wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thine hand. Put in thine hand means the rod is going to be the sign. It's going to be the instrument that you do, the miracles which I, which I tell you to do. Notice the next phrase. But I will harden his heart that he, will not let, that he shall not let his people go. This is one of those uh, places in the Old Testament where uh, Dr. Young, Robert Young, who was the foremost authority of the Greek or of the, the Hebrew in his day, and it's, uh, it's uh, included in Young's analytical concordance uh, in the, the summary notes, uh, not an expanded version, which used to be in print, but, uh, but a summary version about how Dr. Young says that in the Hebrew there's a permissive verb that does not translate into the King James. Now, the reason it doesn't translate into the King James, it does translate into English. But not in the King James English because the, the King James Bible is what's called a transliteration. What that means is it's as close to a word-for-word word translation as anything that we have. Now, there are other translations that are not transliterations that will use expanded phrases to explain what's being said. There are paraphrases that do that. The Amplified is a good paraphrase that does that. And it's, it's accurate for the most part. Not in every case, but... Uh, I don't know any any Bible translation or otherwise that's accurate in 100% of the time. But the, the King James is a transliteration. It's a word-for-word word translation. So therefore, this permissive verb does not translate word-for-word. Word. So it turns out in the, King, in the uh, King James English to be in the causative sense, where in the Hebrew, it's in the permissive sense. Literally, God is saying, I will allow Pharaoh to harden his heart. But people read that, particularly the sovereignty of God people, will say, yeah, see, God's behind that. God's the one doing it. God's the one that made it just that way. And no matter what we want to do here on the earth, God's hand is in control and God's hand is the one guiding everything and he's the one pulling the strings. Well, if that's the case, then what is free will really about? It's not really free will. Jesus didn't say, whosoever God will choose, let him come to me. He said, whosoever will. Yeah, but the Bible says many are, uh, few are they that are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen, or whatever it is it says. Well, the Bible says everybody was chosen. The Bible says that Jesus died for the sins of the world. That means everybody was chosen. Not everybody's going to respond to the invitation, but everybody was chosen. So God sovereignly provided for the redemption of all of mankind, but man through his free will chooses whether to accept it or not chapter five it goes on and it talks about how god uh, sent moses moses tells pharaoh pharaoh says i don't know your god if you guys have time to go three days away and worship god then you must have extra time on your hands so you gather your own straw and make the same number of bricks that you had before and and the people rise up against moses now notice in chapter six verse one then the lord said unto moses Now shalt thou see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand shall he let them go, and with a strong hand shall he drive them out of his land. It starts talking about the the plagues and different things that start happening. He goes to Pharaoh. Well, the plagues haven't started yet. I'm sorry. I'm ahead of myself. Pharaoh, uh, uh, Moses goes into Pharaoh's court. He casts down the rod in front of him. It becomes a serpent. Then Pharaoh called, this is verse 11, then Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers, now the magicians of Egypt, which also did in like manner with their enchantments, for they cast down every man his rod, and they became serpents, but Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. 
Now, folks, I got to tell you, I have no idea how that happened. This cuts across everything that I understand about what the devil can do. How could the devil turn a stick into a snake? I have no idea. It's one of those things that I just have to say, well, I just don't understand, but I know the Bible is true. So this happened, but that doesn't change the other scripture that I know about what it says. There are some things we're just not going to know. I'm not going to let the things that I don't know keep me from the things that I do know. And that is we have authority over the devil, whatever he can do. Amen. Notice verse 13. And he hardened Pharaoh's heart. Literally from the Hebrew it means this. Pharaoh's heart was strong. Pharaoh's heart was strong. The literal translation. Literal version of the, uh, of the Bible. Calls it this way. Or translates this, this this way. And Pharaoh's heart was strong. And he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. Now notice verse 14. Here's, here's something that will prove it. And the Lord said unto Moses. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. He refuses. God didn't say, this would have been a perfect opportunity for God to say, see, I won't let him let the people go yet because I want to kill him. I want to destroy his country. I want to wipe him out. I mean, after all, they took my firstborn, Israel. He even calls Israel his firstborn when Moses speaks to, to Pharaoh. He took my firstborn unjustly. And enslaved them for 400 years. And so now I'm going to wipe them out. He just simply said, Pharaoh refuses to let the people go. It's Pharaoh's choice. God's not making him choose any one way or the other. So then the plagues begin. The water is turned to blood. The plagues of the frogs and the lice happen. Skip with me over to chapter 8. Uh, the Lord did according to the word of, the, of Moses. Verse 13, and the frogs died out of the houses and out of the villages and out of the fields. And they gathered them together upon heaps and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. Now, folks, stop and think about what's happened. What's happened is all the water in the land has turned to blood. It, it's, um, it's amazing how scientists and, and theologians even in some cases try to try to come up with ideas or, or understanding about how could the water turn to blood well it turned to blood because god turned it to blood but you come up with all these theories there's a theory out there that there was a volcanic eruption and it cast the 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 uh, volcanic ash and the volcanic rock into the the nile river and it turned into what's called a red tide and the red tide Caused, created algae that caused the fish to die and the fish died and, and it looked red because of the red tide algae and the fish died and the fish died and uh, when the fish died the frogs came up out of the water and then when the frogs came up out of the water they didn't have anything to eat and so they died on the land and then the flies and the lice came as a result of that and then the flies ate the cattle bit the cattle and gave them anthrax and all this other kind of stuff <laughs> and folks uh, Truly, I wouldn't have a problem if God used a volcanic eruption to cause any of this stuff to happen. That wouldn't bother me a bit. But why wouldn't the Bible tell us? Why is it so hard for the natural mind to accept that what God said happened, happened? I mean, let's face it. We've got an example in the story of creation. The Bible just simply says, and God created the heavens and the earth. And he said, let there be light. And the, and the light appeared. And he said, let there be a sun and a moon and stars. And they were. And let there be dry land. And it was. Now we're finding out from a scientific standpoint what all the stuff was necessary for it to support life. 
Well, God didn't go by and say, and I caused the molecular weight of oxygen to be, or molecular weight of water vapor to be 18, and ammonia gas to be 17. And boy, that was a big deal. God just says, I created the earth, made the dry land appear, made the earth, the firmament divide from the heavens, and uh, on and on and on. So why would we expect that God would say, here are the technical specifications for how I turned the water into blood? Or how I made the frogs come out. I don't have any idea how that works. I do know one thing. I know when it came to the lice. I think it's the lice. It says the dust of the earth became lice. Now that's a neat trick. Wouldn't you agree? I didn't know dust had lice producing qualities. I'm sure glad that's not true in my house. So the frogs. Moses uh, entreats the Lord on behalf of Pharaoh to uh, stop the plague of the frogs. And so it says in verse 14, they gathered them together upon heaps in the land stank. This is chapter 8, verse 14. Now notice verse 15, but when Pharaoh saw that there was respite or relief, he hardened his heart. Now, folks, who's doing it? Is it God doing it or is it he doing it? Is he doing it to himself? The Bible says over and over again he's doing it himself. Verse 16 This is where Moses says through Aaron, stretch out the rod and smite the dust of the land that it may become lice throughout all the land of the earth. Verse 18, the magicians did so with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. Uh, This comes back into my understanding about what Satan can and can't do. But they could not so that there were lice upon man and upon beast. And notice verse 19, then the magicians said unto Pharaoh, this is the finger of God and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Now, what does that tell us? That gives us a little key on why people reject miracles. When the, the magician said, this is the finger of God. This really is God. Now, you know, we're pretty good at tricks. We did the stick turning into snakes and all that kind of stuff, but our snakes got eaten up or our sticks got eaten up or stick snakes or whatever they were. I don't know. Got eaten up by Moses. But this really is God. That's when the Bible identifies specifically that Pharaoh hardens his heart. Why? Again, it goes back to the culture of the day. He thought he was God. He didn't want to admit, refuse to admit that there was a God that was greater than him. He's used to and perhaps pretty accustomed to and and likes it pretty well, the fact that everybody recognizes that he's the top dog of all the gods of of Egypt. And there were a gazillion of them. Of all the gods of Egypt... Pharaoh is the supreme God. He's the one. He's the one we can see. He's the one that talks to us. He's the one that directs us and so forth. So when Pharaoh is told by the magicians who have access to the supernatural abilities, they say, this is the finger of God. This really is God. He's doing something we can't do now. This really is God. Pharaoh hardens his heart. Now, folks, the reason people refuse miracles is because they don't want to acknowledge a higher power. Now, can I ask you a question? What is the division, at least in our own country? We can talk a little bit about the rest of the world and there are similarities, but let's stick with America. We know about us. What is the division between, between Christian churches in America? It comes down to one thing, miracles. It's the reason why Baptists aren't Pentecostals. It's the reason why Pentecostals aren't Methodists. 
Because the dividing, the division is one thing, and that is the miraculous. Now, we can say it's any number of things. Some people will say, well, we believe in miracles. We just don't believe in that speaking in tongues stuff. You can divide it and slice it and dice it any way you want to, but it comes down to one basic thing, and that is the reason the church in America is, is uh, disjointed and not unified, as God said in the Word that he wanted it to be, is because of the miraculous. Because everybody has different ideas and different opinions on miracles. Why? Because not everybody is willing to acknowledge God in the same way. And that's really what it comes down to. Some people will say, well, I believe in the miracles of the Bible, but God doesn't do that anymore. Okay? That's one opinion. So what do you do with something that happens that's miraculous nowadays? Well, they usually make excuses and say God doesn't do that. So isn't that the same thing as Pharaoh saying to his magicians, no, God's not doing this. I refuse to acknowledge that God's really behind this. What's the difference? There is none. Let's keep reading. Uh, further on in chapter 8, the end of chapter 8, it talks about the flies uh, and uh, the swarms of flies. Moses prays and asks God to stop that, and so he, he does. Verse 32, and Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time. Notice it's not God doing it. It says that Pharaoh did it for himself. Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also. Neither would he let the people go. Finally, there are plagues of boil and the, the hail and thunder and hail and so forth. Skip with me over to chapter 9. I want you to see this. Um, Pharaoh sent, verse 27, Pharaoh sent and called. Uh, this was after the, the, the hail and the fire that falls. And uh, this is where God makes a distinction between the rest of Egypt and where the, the uh, people of Israel are, the Israelites are. In the land of Goshen where they lived, there were no more plagues after this one. And so, or starting with this one. So verse 27, Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said unto them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous and I and my people are wicked. Entreat the Lord for it is, not, for it is enough that there be no more mighty thunderings and hail. And I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. Now, finally notice that Moses has wised up. Moses has figured out from Pharaoh's action how things really are. Moses said unto him, as soon as I'm gone out of the city, I will spread abroad my hands unto the Lord, and the thunder shall cease. Neither shall there be any more hail, that thou mayest, knowest, that thou mayest know how that the earth is the Lord's. Not yours, in other words. But as for thee and thy servants, I know that you will not yet fear the Lord God. Now, folks, I want you to realize by the time chapter 9, verse 30 comes along, Moses is saying exactly what God said in chapter 3, verse 19. And I know that you're not going to respect God. You're not going to fear God in this, even though it stops. Moses is saying exactly the same thing that God said to begin with. I know that this is how it's going to go. Moses found out from experience. God knew it from the beginning. Skip with me over to verse 34. And when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunders were ceased... He sinned yet more and hardened his heart. Notice again it says Pharaoh did it to himself. He hardened his heart, he and his servants. And the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. Neither would he let the children of Israel go as the Lord had spoken by Moses. What's it saying? It's saying it happened just the way God told him from the beginning. And that Moses related to Pharaoh just a few verses before. The point I want you to see, and it hammers it over and over and over again. 
Even the King James translation, you don't even have to find another translation. It says it again and again and again, how that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. What's the significance? What's the importance of that? Pharaoh refused to accept or acknowledge the miracles. Keep that in mind. Uh, how many more of these do we want to look at? It tells about uh, how the Passover was instituted. The, the plagues continue. The Passover is instituted. And uh, the death of the firstborn, just as God said. Uh, I'm not sure if I can find it real quickly. Let me see if I can. Um, Oh, I wish I'd marked it. Where is this? There's a verse of scripture that where God, I, I think I referred to it a minute ago, where God says, uh, you've taken my firstborn Israel and let them go. If you don't let them go, then I'll take your firstborn. But anyway, it's just exactly what, uh, what God said that would take place, just exactly the way that God said that it would happen. And so the Passover is instituted. Uh, and they put the, the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and on the, the side post of the, of the, of the door. And the angel of death passes over. Now, folks, you need to understand something. The angel of death was from God. I know some people have a hard time with that, but the angel of death is from God. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, I thought you said, I thought the Bible says in John 10, 10, that the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And that Jesus said, I'm come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. That's right. But that doesn't mean that that's always the way that it was. See, under the Old Testament, but before Jesus came along, man could not be judged separate from his sin. Because man was an unrighteous individual. He had become joined with spiritual death. And so if God's going to execute judgment on spiritual death, he has to execute judgment on mankind. That's why the enemies of Israel, time and time again, mostly during David's reign, but time and time again, where the, uh, the, Israel, uh, the enemies of Israel would rise up against them, God would say, go destroy them. That's why when they entered into the promised land under Joshua, he said, kill everybody that's there. Why? Because those, represent, those people represented sin itself. The good news is that Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. What that means is Jesus paid the price through his own sacrifice. He paid the price that separates man from his sin. That's why man now can make a choice to accept the sacrifice that Jesus paid for our spiritual death. Literally spiritual death. We, we summarize it and say sin, but it's really not sin. It's spiritual death. Jesus died spiritually to pay the price for spiritual death so that we, because the price has been paid for something separate from us, can accept righteousness as our own. That's why it's good news. That's exactly why it's good news. See, some people think that, that God was behind all the killing in the Bible. Not so. God executed judgment on sin in the Bible, and therefore he had to execute it on the men that were operating in the sin. That's why it's such good news that Jesus came and paid the price that separates man from his sin so that you can become righteous and your sin can be done away with. Are you with me? I know that's tough for some people to accept, but it's the way that the Bible describes it. So the angel of death comes and kills the firstborn of, of Egypt, and Pharaoh finally turns loose and lets the people go. Now, in chapter 14, I want you to see chapter 14. They come to the point where Pharaoh hardens his heart again. The Bible indicates that he's... Uh, and God said it was going to happen even before it did. 
God said to Moses, go through the wilderness, and Pharaoh's going to think the wilderness has trapped you, and so he's going to come out against you again. When they get to the Red Sea, Moses, who knows that God has told him everything except this, up to this point, God has told him what's going to happen before the fact, but he has no, we don't have no record whatsoever that God ever said, I'm going to part the Red Sea for you. If he had told him that, then Moses might have operated in a different way than he did. But he comes to the place where they're hemmed in, mountains on one side, mountains on the other side. Uh, the Red Sea is behind them, and Pharaoh is bearing down on them. God takes the pillar of fire, and he separates Israel from Pharaoh's armies for the entirety of the night. Uh, after well once Moses starts acting on this I guess I'm ahead of myself a little bit but the people start getting afraid and the people see Pharaoh's armies coming and and remember folks Egypt is the world's superpower at that time this is the mightiest force on the face of the earth this is like the American the all of the American military force coming down on a a village in Africa somewhere I mean there's there's no defense there's no uh, way that they can fight this thing or have any hope whatsoever that's the fear that these people would feel and so it says in verse 13 Moses said to the people this is chapter 14 verse 13 Moses said unto the people fear ye not stand still and see the salvation of the Lord what has Moses figured out so far he's figured out that God's not going to leave us he's not going to let us down he's not going to depart from us he's not going to abandon us that's all he knows and so that's what he tells the people Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he shall show to you this day. For the Egyptians who you have seen today, you shall see them again no more forever. Now, this is one thing that Moses does know. Moses, when he goes to Pharaoh with the last of the place to tell him about the, um, uh, or, or knowing, he really doesn't tell Pharaoh, but knowing that the death of the firstborn is coming, Pharaoh says, I will never see your face again. This is the last time I'll ever see you. And Moses responds and says, well, it's just the way you're going to say just the way you've said it, that's the way it'll be. So Moses knows that Pharaoh cannot survive. He knows that the Egyptian army is not going to survive. Whatever happens, whatever God does, they won't survive. But that's all he knows. At least that's all we have record of in the Bible that he knows. If he knows something else, it seems uh, illogical that God wouldn't have told us. And he says in verse 14, The Lord shall fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Now notice the position of the people. Let's stop and think about the people for a minute. Most scholars, and there's no way to know for sure, we know how many, how long three of the, the plagues lasted. The first plague lasted seven days, the ninth plague lasted for three days, and the tenth plague lasted for one day. So that's a total of ten days. You have to uh, assume that there's a day or maybe a two days, maybe a few days in between the different plagues, but we don't know how long the rest of them are. Most scholars uh, guess, and that's all it is, guess that it was anywhere from three months to a year's time for the ten plagues to take place. I don't know. Maybe they're right. Maybe they're wrong. There's really no way to know. But it, it, it doesn't stand to reason that it's one day after the other. Bang, 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 bang. It seems to, to the, the, the writing seems to indicate that there's a lull. There's an opportunity that God's given Pharaoh to change his mind, to change his attitude toward this, to respond and, and so forth. And if he doesn't, he, another plague comes on. And in many cases, the plagues lasted until Pharaoh said to Moses, would you get rid of this stuff? So we don't know how long that was. We don't know if that was one day. In one case, we know that he said about the frogs, he said, will you pray the Lord that he'd get rid of them tomorrow? I don't know why he wanted that last night with the frogs, but apparently he did. So we have no way to know for sure how long these things lasted. So let's assume 
for the sake of argument that this lasted for a few months. Remember, three of the plagues affected Israel. The first three plagues affected Israel along with Egypt. But after that, the last seven, Israel is sitting back, just enjoying life, still slaves. We don't know if they're still working. We don't know if they're still under the, the, the whip of the taskmaster. We don't know any of those things. None of those things are said. But we do know that the people, the Egyptian people, hate the, the Israelites because they recognize that their God, the, the God of the Hebrews, is doing this stuff and bringing these things upon them. The people are well satisfied and really willing and ready to let the children of Israel go long before Pharaoh is. Long before. I mean, they, let's get rid of these people. Fine, get rid of them. As a matter of fact, when they go and, and ask to borrow jewels, the word borrow is used in the King James, they're asking for payment literally for the time that they were slaves. We've been slaves to your people for 400 years. Now pay up. The people of Egypt are willing, ecstatic to pay up. This means you're leaving? Great. Get out of here. Some of them even said, we realize that your God is more powerful than anything we've ever seen. We want to go with you too. So here, take all my stuff and let me come with you. So the people are ready to go, just like God said that they would be. The people are ready to go with it. It's Pharaoh that refused. So Moses says, the Lord shall fight for you and you shall hold your peace. And the Lord said unto Moses, verse 15, one of the strangest verses in all of the scripture in my opinion. The Lord said unto Moses, wherefore criest thou unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel that they go forward, but lift up thy rod and stretch out thy hand over the sea and divide it, and the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them. And I will get me honor upon Pharaoh and upon all of his hosts, upon his chariots and upon his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten me honor upon Pharaoh and upon his chariots and upon his horsemen. Now, stop and think about Moses. Moses has been operating for some time. Again, we don't know the period of the time of the plagues. But from the time that he saw the Lord and spoke to the Lord in the burning bush in Midian to the time that he returned to Egypt and began to address, first of all, the children of Israel, tell them about deliverance. They were on his side to begin with. Then Pharaoh turned against them, and they turned against Moses. Then the plague started happening, and the people are sitting back saying, well, maybe this Moses guy's got something to him after all. Whatever period of time that was, maybe a year, six months, maybe a year, I don't know. But whatever period of time that is, God expects Moses to take a different position and have a different attitude about God's deliverance than what he shows. When he says in verse 15 to Moses, why are you crying out unto me? Well, isn't that what we're supposed to do when we're in trouble? I mean, really, isn't it? Well, sure it is. Of course it is. That's the first thing I do. It's the first thing you do. It's the first thing all of us do. We're supposed to go to the Lord expecting for him to help us. But his position on this, God's position on this toward Moses is that Moses, you have seen what I will do because I said I was going to deliver my people. If crossing a Red Sea, if causing a Red Sea to dry up, if doing something to get you across this body of water is necessary for me to deliver my people, you should know by now you don't have to talk to me about it. You don't have to ask me about it. Do it because I've already said I deliver my people. The only thing God says to Moses, well, two things he says to Moses. is Number one, what are you talking to me about it for? You've got the rod in your hand. Secondly, stretch your rod out over the waters. Here's how to make this work. Stretch out your rod over the waters and I'll do to Pharaoh exactly what I said that I was going to do. So he does. 
He stretches out his hand or the rod over the waters and the waters start parting. It takes all night. The pillar of fire goes and, and divides between Pharaoh and the Israelites. It talks about the wind blowing all night. It talks about the waters. King James says the waters uh, congealed as a heap. The only thing I know about congealing is jello. So I've got a question for you. What did God change? What miracle did God work so that the waters piled up like jello? Did it change the property of water? Did it change the properties of gravity? If it changed the properties of gravity, did it change it just regarding the water? Because the people walked over. They didn't float. They walked over on dry ground. So what did God do? What miracle did God perform? How did God reach from outside of time and space into time and space and make the waters part? How did it work? Anybody got any ideas? I mean, anybody got any ideas that you could prove? I mean, we can speculate about any number of things. It's kind of like the walking in the water. When Jesus walked in the water, what did he change? Did he change him? Did he change gravity? Did he change the water? What did he change? I don't know, but he walked on the water. And it's interesting to me that God didn't have to, again, give us the technical specifications for it. Now, I've got another question for you. Why didn't God cause that pillar of fire just to wipe out Pharaoh? Save a lot of time and energy on his part, it would seem. I mean, the pillar of fire is already there. Just widen that sucker out and plow through. (laughs) My point is very simply this. There's a number of things he could have done and a number of ways he could have done it differently than he did. Why did God do what he did in parting the Red Sea? Because he's trying to communicate The purpose for the Red Sea parting was to communicate to mankind. He's already upset with Moses because Moses hasn't received the communication from the ten plagues. Moses, what are you crying out to me for? You stretch the rod out over the water and divide it. God didn't even say he'll do it. He said you do it. Well, really? Yeah, really. Because when you've got the word of God on something... It's impossible for it to be broken. And God said, I will deliver my people from the hand of Pharaoh. He said, I will show my wonders upon Pharaoh. Moses should have, should have, and of course, easy for me to say, hindsight, I wasn't there. But Moses should have, maybe could, certainly could have, maybe should have. Taken the position that, wow, that means because God's on my side, I could do anything and everything that's necessary to get these people free. He could have started looking around and saying, man, what's the best way for me to do this? And that seems to be the position that God wants him to take. And folks, please get this. That's the way God wants us to operate. You remember when we look at things as being such hard situations. We look at the, the, uh, um, the birth of Isaac where Abraham was 100 years and Sarah was 90. And we think, oh, wow, what a miracle that was. We look at the virgin birth. What a miracle of conception that was. Uh, Mary gets pregnant and there's not even a, a male donor. God overshadows her with the Holy Ghost. We look at things like that and we think, wow, how big that was. How tough is that for God? He's reaching from outside of time and space. How big a problem is it? For us, in our natural thinking, we think it's huge. Oh, my gosh, it's huge. We look at our bill. We think, oh, my goodness, I owe $1,000. What am I going to do? Seriously? When God said, I'll supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. We sweat stuff that we're facing. 
when God did these things and got upset with Moses because he didn't expect it and do it on his own without having to talk to God first. So God parts the Red Sea. Israel goes over on dry ground. The chariots of Israel come in, uh, the chariots of Egypt come in behind them. And it says that the wheels bogged down in the mud. If Israel went through on dry ground, how did the, how did the Egyptians have mud? Did God change the properties of mud? Or just for Israel and not for, maybe it was muddy all along, but the, the miracle was that they didn't get muddy. They went over on dry ground and the Egyptians couldn't. Folks, I don't have an answer. I'm just posing some certain questions. See, we look at things and we think so one-dimensional on stuff. At least I do. I'm not going to blame you for being like me. I would never do that. But we look at things and we, we, we have to have things categorized. And I'm sure there are scientific explanations for it. The problem is we don't have enough information to know what they would be. So what are we left with? We're left with miracle. We're left with this word called miracle that means anything and everything. Now, Turn back with me. Israel goes over on dry ground. Pharaoh and his armies are defeated. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 15. I'll close with this. Genesis chapter 15 is when God makes a covenant with Abraham. We'll start reading in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. His name's Abram, so he hasn't had his son yet. Abram is probably about 80 years old at this point in time. He left his father's land at 75, age 75. He's been walking with God and in obedience with God for about five years of his life. And after these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars. Are you able to number them? And he said unto them, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he, God, counted it to him, Abraham, for righteousness. And he brought unto him, he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of the earth of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Abram said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, Take a heifer of three years old and a she-goat of three years old and a ram of three years old and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these and divided them in the midst and laid each piece one against the other, but the birds divided he not. When the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them and shall afflict them four hundred years. I want you to notice, folks, that God said to Abraham, five years after he started obeying him, he told him what was going to happen. That we read about in the Exodus. And also that nation. Verse 14. Whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterwards shall they. Your people come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. And thou shalt be buried in a good age. 
But in the fourth generation shall they come, they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Then it talks about the, the glory of the Lord and how the, the covenant is made after that. I want you to understand something, folks. This is 636 years before the Exodus. 636 years. God planned outside of space and time. It's not that he's pulling strings and deciding on the fly. 636 years before God parted the Red Sea, before God poured out the ten plagues upon Egypt. 636 years God planned the deliverance of his people. Again, as I said before, this is the only time, Egypt is the only time we have in Jewish history where they didn't go into bondage to another nation by their own disobedience and rebellion against God. It's the only time. Every other time from the time they get were delivered from Egypt and went into the promised land, God said, this land is yours and nobody can take it from you unless you disobey me, unless you ignore my word and, and disobey my commandments. That's the only thing that will happen. But if you do that, if you disobey my word and don't give ear to my commandments, then other nations will, shall dispossess you from this land. They shall take you captive. And that's what happened over and over and over again. This example in Egypt is the only time that that was not the case. Egypt took the Israelites captive because they did exactly what God said they would do, and that was they multiplied exponentially. And Egypt was threatened by them. And so what did God do? God saw what was going to happen. He told Abraham before Abraham had Isaac, the one that started it all. He said, this is the way it's going to be. And he's speaking 630 years, 36 years in the future. Now let me ask you a question. Do we not all understand that something has happened in our life? If we took time and gave a microphone to every person in the room, every one of us would have an opportunity to tell about something miraculous, whether it's a bona fide miracle or not, at least something supernatural that God's done in our own lives. What do we know about how God works miracles? We see that God plans stuff out way, 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 way out front. If you need a miracle today... God, who is outside of space and time, saw hundreds of years ago that you were going to need it. So what did he do? He gave you a promise that would bring it to pass. Yeah, but, but my name's not in the Bible, Pastor Mike. There's nowhere where it says, John Smith, here's what belongs to you. Or Jim Jones, here's what belongs to you. No, he gave us scriptures to tell us what, all, what belongs to all of us. But it's no less true. Smith Wilkersworth used to say this. Smith Wilkersworth would say this. He said he preached this and spoke this and tried to define this over and over and over again. He said faith is the audacity. Audacity just means boldness. Willingness to be bold. Faith is the audacity that rejoices because God cannot break his word. Faith is not agitation, he said. It's the quiet confidence that God means what he says as we act on his word. When Abraham and Sarah, some 20 years after this point in time, in Genesis chapter 15, are coming upon the birth of their son, the last thing that God says regarding Sarah and her willingness to believe God's promise was, is anything too hard for the Lord? 
Think about it. We think about it from our standpoint. Is anything too hard for the Lord? It's always surprised me and, and interested me that uh, a blind man came to Jesus and Jesus asked him, he said, do you believe I'm able to do this? Because believing God is able is, is huge. It's huge. We say, oh, yeah, God can do anything. Yeah, but can he do this? It's easy to say God can do anything with God. Nothing's impossible. It's another thing to say God can do something about my situation. God can do something about my circumstance. That's a big difference. Huge difference. It doesn't matter if you believe God can do anything. The real question is, do you believe he can help you? Because whether God can do anything or not, if you don't believe he can help you, where is your hope? So God asks Sarah, is anything too hard for the Lord? Really, he's talking to Abraham to tell her, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Folks, seeing the precision that God creates the universe with, the, the minute details that are involved in just the, not only the creation but the sustaining of life, to see the details that he went to, the planning that he had 400 years before Israel ever went into to, uh, Egypt, 630 years before Israel was ever born as a nation. The planning that God went through. The same precision that God created the universe with, he planned for Israel to be delivered. What kind of precision do you think he had in mind when it came to the blood of Jesus? What kind of precision do you think God had and what kind of plans did he make when it came to man having authority over all the works of the, of the devil? His enemy, the one that took his man in the first place. What precision, what reality, what power do you think he planned for? When it came to setting you free, once and for all, not just temporary, not just like Israel, free to disobey again and again and again, but once and for all, an eternal redemption. What kind of precision, what kind of miracle plans do you think God had in mind for that? The Bible says of, of creation that it was, it was a small thing for God. Bible says of other miracles where God made water in the desert where there was nothing. God said, this is a small thing, a light thing for me. Well, if those are light things, how big a thing is it for him to deliver you and me? God is the God of miracles, folks. God is the God that doeth miracles. He never quits because he's not just what he does. It's who he is. The issue is very simply this. The Bible says that God has planned. He's made plans for mankind through the end of the age. So even if somebody came up with the notion and the idea, even if they wanted to believe God is through doing miracles, they've got a problem because God planned to do miracles thousands of years ago. And they're not done yet. So even if from this day forward he decided I'm never going to do another miracle, he's still got the ones he's already planned to catch up on. They're still in the pipe. Just like the parting of the Red Sea was. By the time the parting of the Red Sea event took place, God was like, well, of course. It's been planned this way forever. When it came to your deliverance, when it comes to your healing, God says, of course. It's been planned for since the foundations of the earth. Oh, if we could get an understanding of how impossible it is for God to break his word. You're talking about something impossible. It's impossible for God to break his word. 
Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you, Father, that it's a sure foundation for us. Father, you know the needs that are represented by the people that are here in this place today. You know their financial needs. You know their physical needs. You know their family needs. There are other types of needs too, Father. We know that you saw these things before we ever knew that they were coming. Furthermore, because you are the God of miracles, a God of precision, you planned for the deliverance of each and every one of us, the meeting of each and every one of these needs before we ever knew we needed help. Father, thank you that your word is true. Thank you that it's impossible for your word to lie. Thank you, Father, that we have been set free by the blood of Jesus, and he that is set free is free indeed in every way. Therefore, we thank you, Father, that according to your word, we're free from sickness and disease. We're free from lack and poverty. We're free from every evil work, every work of the devil, according to your word. Your word has made a precise plan for us the power of God to be made known and to be realized oh father we're reminded that even after you delivered Israel you said to them in Exodus 34 verse 10 you said and I will make a covenant with you and I will do wonders miracles like the world has never seen After you parted the Red Sea, Lord, that's when you said you'd do great miracles that the world had never seen. Like they'd ever seen that, that you had already done. Thank you, Father, that that's for us. It's for all those that obey your word. Thank you, Father, for doing miracles on our behalf. As needed and as necessary. To set your people free. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Who'd God love more? Israel at the Red Sea or you who's been redeemed by the blood of Jesus? The Bible says in the Old Covenant, Israel were servants, your children, sons and daughters of God the Father. Who do you love more? The people that work for you or the people that are of your loins, of your family? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything in your situation too hard for Him? It's not from His end. And it never will be from His end. Let's all stand. I wish I had a way to fix this or end this. Lord, we worship you. We magnify your name. You are the God that doeth miracles. We believe that all things are possible for you and by you, Lord, because we are joined together with you by the blood of Jesus. We believe that all things are possible for us. Thank you, Lord, that your word brings to pass the supernatural and even the miraculous in our lives. Because we have truly been set free by the blood of Jesus. We magnify your name, Lord. We thank you for your great power. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.